welcome to Women's Health Weekly from Maiden Lane Medical. We bring you experts from all around the country to help you with your health, life, and happiness. Now for your host, Dr. Kenneth Levy. Welcome back to Women's Health Weekly, brought to you by the experts in women's health care at Maiden Lane Medical. The goal of this conversation that we like to have with YouTube viewers, YouTube audience on a weekly basis is that we want to bring to you information directly from the experts so that you don't have to go out on the internet and look for things that may be misleading or may not be true or may be geared towards selling products. We want to offer you the best expert information. It just so happens that this is like the perfect storm of two things today, other than the rain. The perfect storm of two things today. First, it's Fibroids Awareness Month, and we're going to talk all about fibroids today. Second, at Maiden Lane Medical, we have like five or six gynecologists who are absolute experts in fibroids who have dedicated their careers to working with working uh, with women who have fibroids, working with infertility doctors and general gynecologists and obstetricians, and we are truly the region's experts in this area. Um, so I am very happy to bring one of our other physicians and gynecologic surgeons here on the weekly program with us. And I know you've all met her before. Some of you may be her patients. You've all met Dr. Shoma Dada. Um, Dr. Dada has been with the practice for many years um, and is an expert in minimally invasive surgery, gynecology, and has a particular interest in fibroids. So... Dr. Dada, did I leave anything out from the introduction about how amazing you are? Oh, do go on. No, thank you very much. This is uh, obviously at Maiden Lane, one of our bread and butter topics, and it affects so many patients. And I think we really do have a really um, a great program on management of this of this issue. So I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about this today. Yeah, this is going to be a fun conversation with us for us today because it really flows. Uh, this is not a. This is something we do every day. Uh, we do it all day. Uh, we have a ton of uh, referrals from uh, physicians in the community and even around the country and the world um, for managing some of the complex issues associated uh, with this topic. All right, let's start with the basics. What on earth is a, what's Levy even talking about? What's, what, what is a fibroid? The fibroid is, it's a benign tumor, number one, meaning not a cancer, but it is an overgrowth of some cells and it's an overgrowth of muscular tissue within the uterus. And it can be on several aspects of the uterus. It can be, and this is very important, you'll notice down the road when we talk about treatment. Um, it can be sitting on top of the fibroid. It can be at different depths within the wall of the fibroid. And it can even be impinging on that inner part of the cavity where it typically would carry a pregnancy. So location is very important. Um, and that's you know the gist of what exactly a fibroid is because a lot of women actually um, a lot of patients say, oh, I saw on my sonogram or, you know, somebody told me in the past I had fibroids, but what exactly is it? So that's a, that's a good kind of basic explanation. Okay. So how does a woman know if she has fibroids? What, what, what are the signs that, a, that, a, or the symptoms that a patient might com start complaining about, uh, when, uh, there might possibly be fibroids? So typically what we see in the office, uh, most commonly women come in and they're noticed heavier periods, heavy bleeding outside the time of the period, or 
you know, random spotting, just anything outside of the normal pattern of a monthly period. And in addition, they may have a number of other symptoms as well. One of them related to bulk symptoms. So because there is now this, you know, tumor of any different size, but it could be putting pressure on the bladder, pelvic pressure in general, um, maybe you know, with intercourse feeling extra pressure. So there could be some pressure pain that way, um, could be extra cramping feeling. And then in general, a lot of women say, you know, all of a sudden, um, another thing can be bladder pressure. I feel like I have to, you know, run to the bathroom to empty my bladder much more often than before. Um, there's even sometimes it can put compression on the um, the rectum. So it may be difficulty passing a bowel movement, um, or, you know, feeling that constant pressure. Those are what we most commonly see. Um, sometimes farther down the road, they may come in and say, you know what, my doctor told me I'm anemic, my, my blood count is very low, and we're looking for reasons why, um, and I've noticed my periods are heavy, so does that have something to do with it? You know, it really has a, a, a pretty big spectrum of symptoms that we see, but I would say irregular bleeding is probably the first thing um, that we notice. Yeah, you're right. Irregular bleeding is probably the most common thing we see. But what's really important about this conversation about symptoms is that there are a lot of symptoms that can both be directly related to fibroids, but also related to other things uh, in the absence of fibroids. And one of the things that has the potential to be a little bit more difficult, which is why you should always uh, follow up with your gynecologist for these issues, is that you can have fibroids and abnormal bleeding, but the abnormal bleeding has nothing to do with the fibroids. I saw a patient like that exactly yesterday, um, and there was a whole separate issue uh, that needed to be addressed. So some of these issues, um, some women come in with uh, painful intercourse because the uterus is tender, um, and painful intercourse can be a sign of fibroids, but it's far down on the list of common things uh, that we see in association with um, fibroids. And I think uh, the takeaway from what Dr. Dada said was really um, the point of um, going to see a gynecologist when there's a change. When there's a change in your bleeding pattern normally indicates or typically indicates that there's um, potentially a problem. I want to go back to what you said earlier just while we're on the basics before we kind of move on to some of these awesome um, some of these awesome uh, fibroid-related uh, questions coming through from our YouTube viewers. Just, just kind of the basics on the locations, right? If you think of the uterus as a big muscular um, ball, um, and you think of that ball uh, as having uh, smaller balls associated with it, then you could get an idea of where fibroids might potentially be located. Some fibroids are balls on the outside of the bigger ball. Some fibroids are fibroids on the very inside or the cavity of the big of the bigger ball and sometimes fibroids um, can be associated with um, uh, with inside the wall or in that or in the, the or in what makes up the bigger ball um, so there are some definite uh, sorry about that there are some uh, uh, definite things to understand about the locations of the fibroids as we uh, continue this conversation so I have a great question or a quick question from one of our YouTube viewers Sean asks um, can there also be hip pain associated with fibroids? And I, I'll, I'll kind of take that. Um, sure, sure, there can be hip pain associated with fibroids. Um, fibroids can get large enough to do two things. Um, I think we lost Dr. Tom, Dr. Dada Thomas's camera there. Um, fibroids can, oh, there she are. Hi. Uh, fibroids can get large enough to do two things, Sean. One, one 
thing fibroids can get large enough to do is push on um, the pelvic floor muscles. And sometimes when they push on pelvic floor muscles, um, they change the way those muscles attach at the uh, attach throughout the pelvis and at the hip, and that in and of itself can cause hip pain. Um, if you have radiating pain um, throughout your buttocks and into your hip and even potentially down your legs on one side, most commonly, then the, it's entirely possible that those fibroids have pushed on some of the nerve roots um, coming out of your lower spine. And that's a sign of um, something a little more advanced and something that you, you know, that can probably be alleviated and treated quite easily. Um, so that's, uh, that's another potential sign that a patient might show up with, uh, if they have, uh, fibroids. Let me get to, uh, I have some, some great questions on here about treating and preventing fibroids. We're going to get to that. Um, let me get to the C word. Uh, can the C word, the, the cancer <laughs> word, I, can okay. fibroids be, you said, for, you said fibroids are benign tumors. Can fibroids be cancer? So when we're talking about an existing fibroid, it is extremely rare that we're dealing with something. The, the concern oftentimes that my patients will have is, is this something that we can become cancer? And the, the, question, the, uh, the answer is it's extremely rare, almost approaching you know, less than 0.5% that something that exists will have a cancerous transformation. So yeah, they don't. They tend not to become cancer. That's more likely that they started off as as cancer um, and then just kind of grew. And they were and everyone thought someone thought it was a fibroid, and it was really it was really um, just a, just a, a cancer to start off with. And it kind of grew and started to look, and looked like a fibroid, but it really uh, wasn't. So fibroids in and of themselves are benign tumors, and there are some ways to potentially decide whether or not there's a cancer there uh, based on the imaging results of an MRI. There are some, there's one particular uh, laboratory study that can be done. And uh, that is, um, that is a one potential way to look at it. All right. So uh, let's talk, let's talk about um, preventing fibroids, how they grow. Can fibro can fibroids even be prevented? Is there anything someone can do to prevent fibroids? Typically, at this point, we don't have a lot of great preventive methods. Um, there is some, you know, loose data on low-fat diet. And again, we, we do see that, you know, the fibroid is hormone-dependent, like we mentioned. So there is some um, thought about, you know, are, it, can something be accelerated with hormone um, supplementation or medication? But there's not really a standard practice that we can offer to completely prevent fibroids across the board. Yeah, there isn't anything out there really. Um, Cedra asked a really great question about green tea. Um, and there is, there is some evidence. She, the specific question that Cedra asked was, uh, does green tea help alleviate growth and size? And she actually couched it in a very reasonable way because there's no evidence that green tea prevents fibroids. Um, but the question is very reasonable because there, um, is an, there is something in green tea um, called it a catechin. Uh, that's, not, that's, a, that's a class of compounds um, that are found in a lot of teas um, and, and in other uh, natural and herbal supplementations that um, generally reduce uh, inflammation. And one of the reasons fibroids bother you, not me, um, I, I don't have fibroids, but for women who have fibroids, um, 
one of the reasons they're bothersome is because they're surrounded by a highly inflammatory environment. And it's also part of the reason they cause bleeding disruptions. Um, so if you have this inflammatory environment uh, around a fibroid and you can decrease it, then there's less, they're less likely to bother you. So women walk around with fibroids all the time that are totally asymptomatic. They have no problems with them. And probably because their inflammatory response is different from somebody else's inflammatory response or the fibroids are different size or different location. But it's a, it's a very good question about the, the green tea um, and the fibroids in it, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, remember that bleeding, abnormal bleeding in the uterus, um, is it comes from like two main areas, right? It comes from an anatomic problem, whether it's a fibroid or a polyp, and it comes from an inflammatory environment. So you have a, if you have an inflammatory environment in the uterus and you decrease that inflammatory environment, then if there was abnormal bleeding associated with that inflammatory environment, then decreasing inflammation is likely to improve that bleeding profile. And it's interesting, people always ask me the question, uh, just, at, just on the, as a side note, we often give um, anti-inflammatory medications such as Motrin uh, to women who have a newly placed IUD and are having some, at the very beginning, persistent bleeding. And, part, and the, re the main reason for that persistent bleeding is because the IUD has now induced a significant amount of inflammation and we can cut it down with some low-dose uh, some low-dose anti-inflammatory. Um, so that's, uh, and, and people say, well, I, I, I thought Motrin thins your blood. I should bleed more, but the uterine vessels just don't work that way. <laughs> they have, it's a whole different mechanism of action of stopping, of stopping bleeding from the uterine, from the tiny uterine vessels than it is in the rest of the body. It's less platelet dependent than it is inflammation, inflammation dependent. Um, so, okay, I don't want to get off topic, but uh, that's, uh, inflammation is associated with a lot of diseases um, as you're probably all hearing on the news about uh, COVID-19, how important inflammation is uh, in our bodies, and fibroids are no exception, are no exception to that. Um, okay, so I, actually, what, before we get off the cancer topic, uh, completely, we'll completely leave it behind. There was controversy many, many years ago about a particular technique uh, used to remove fibroids from the body, and that that technique was called morselation. Um, sadly, a woman in Boston um, had fibroids. She was a young woman, I believe a young mother, um, and had the procedure and a device called a, mor a morselator was used. And it wound up actually, the fibroid turned out to be cancer, which as Dr. Dada said, is pretty rare. So the doctors didn't really have a way uh, to clearly ahead of time deny it. They, they presumed as they probably should have that this was fibroids. Um, and uh, what they wound up doing with this morselator was spreading little chips of fibroids all over her belly and, and making her cancer much more severe. And I believe she passed away uh, from that, from as a result of that. Uh, so that was a very sad story that uh, that got us into a, a movement of not using morselators anymore. Um, so now we find, well, now we have a whole different way of taking them out. So it is important to know, to do our best to know ahead of time if there's cancer, but we've eliminated that morselator problem. So we don't spread cancer around people's um, bellies anymore. I think it's a really important discussion that I'm very impressed. A lot of patients are coming forward and asking, so how are you going to remove this fibroid? I hear that, you know, there's this story about spreading cancer. And I think it just goes to show that it is important to have the discussion with your gynecologist and your surgeon about the techniques that they use and that they have a variety of tools in the toolbox. Um, 
in terms of medical therapy, surgical therapy. And um, that's why I, I love, you know, telecasts like this and information to get out there because I do think it, the patient uh, and, and doctor should be on an even level with the conversation. And these type of questions, especially for fibroid surgery, are extremely important. We're, we're um, we've seen since that morselation uh, issue that we've really had to pivot and we've been lucky to all, you know, we have four or five of us in our practice that do this surgery. And we often have uh, kind of gotten tips and tricks from each other on how to evolve this technique to make it something really safe. And I, I think it's been very effective. I think the literature is showing that um, the, the risk of spreading the cancer is not as high as we initially thought when we use these uh, more focused techniques where we're not spreading um, specimen. Um, but to your point, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I do think that's an important discussion for the patient to have uh, with their surgeon. Yeah, it's definitely an important discussion to have uh, ahead of time. And uh, interestingly enough, on a side note with regard to that, uh, once we stopped using the morselator, our the length of our surgeries actually decreased. Uh, it wasn't, as it turns out, it wasn't faster. It wasn't a faster way to get it out. We just made a tiny extra, like one centimeter incision in the belly button, put it in a bag, and now we cut it out from the bag. And that, that whole process usually takes like seven minutes. Um, so it yeah. was really, versus the morselator that took like a half hour and broke down all the time. Um, so uh, <laughs> things, you know, things you know now that go on in the operating room are through our YouTube uh, friends. Um, so let, uh, there are two great questions that are on here about risk of getting fibroids and what can be done additionally to kind of um, decrease growth. But I want to, before I address that, I'd really like to go to what we kind of skipped over, uh, which is who gets fibroids. And uh, a lot of that is, so a lot of that answer is really in the just general epidemiology of fibroids. So who are the people that genetically most are most likely to get fibroids? So it's, it's really interesting. They, the estimate in general, the total population is, all the way possibly up to 80% of women that do have fibroids at some point. We do see that by age 35, um, and then again when we compare at age 50, that African-American women um, compared to Caucasian women do have a higher propensity for this. It's probably up to about uh, 70 to 80% um, in the African-American population and more around 60% in the Caucasian based on our data. So we do see some um, some pattern there. So, and Hispanic women tend to get it uh, at a similar rate that Caucasian women, but the people that get it the least often are Asian women, uh, interestingly enough. And I think that goes along with, um, from an epidemiologic standpoint, the, the um, breast cancer data also. Asian women have the lowest rates of um, breast cancer unless, unless, they grew up in America. Um, so Asian women who are eating Asian diets um, have low rates of fibroids and breast cancer. Asian women who are eating American diets um, have high rates of um, breast cancer. And by American diets, I mean like, uh, McDonald's in New York and McDonald's in Beijing are the same bad thing. So <laughs> that's, what, that's, sort of, that's sort of what I'm talking about with regard to uh, American diets or uh, Western European diets. Um, okay, so... Um, but so 80% of women, up to 80% of women have fibroids, are at risk of fibroids for, at some point in their lifetime. Um, but not, we clearly don't see 80% of women complaining about fibroid symptoms. So it's possible to have fibroids and not even be bothered by it. Right. Probably about 30 to 40% of those women are actually symptomatic. Um, and 
as a as another statistic, the actual surgery that we're performing, which we'll talk about in in a few moments, is about there's about thirty thousand specific fibroid surgeries performed myomectomies, so they're called, um, performed on a, an average year in the U.S. and about half of hysterectomies, which is close to two hundred thousand um, per year, are performed for my for uh, myomas or fibroids. Um, yeah, it's an incredibly common problem and an incredibly, uh, um, uh, it's an incredibly common problem, but, and you'd be surprised how many doctors get it wrong, which is why you need to be treated by experts in the, in the area. Um, so, all right, so just some, a couple of quick questions on, on prevention and, and growth and what can I do to stop it? And before we talk about, to spend the rest of the show talking about, um, treatment and potentially even effects on pregnancy, um, so is there anything, Liana asks, is there, uh, Liana, pardon me if I've, if I've butchered your name, I apologize. Um, is there anything one can do to minimize the risk of getting fibroids? And I would say probably not. Um, there are some risk factors for getting fibroids, uh, and we'll, 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 I'll talk about those now. Um, the... Uh, one of the risk factors is obesity, and so heavier women or women with a large, a higher body mass index tend to get fibroids at higher rates, um, and w most people believe that's because of the extra estrogen that's produced in the peripheral fat. Remember we said at the beginning, fibroids are an estrogen-responsive disease, um, and more estrogen is going to make that cook along. Um, another risk, is smoking a risk factor, as far as I know? Or is it not? I don't believe so. You don't think? Yeah, I don't think smoking's a risk factor either. Um, at the the other risk factor, actually, interestingly enough, because Sussy asked me about um, birth control. Uh, Sussy QW asked me about birth control, and yeah, birth control pills confer a higher risk for getting fibroids. Um, that's not a reason not to take birth control pills if those if that's the best form of contraception for you. Um, however, birth control pills do increase your risk of getting fibroids. Um, and I don't think anyone clearly knows why. We just have the observation that there's about a 1.6 to 1.8 relative risk of um, getting fibroids versus, versus people who are um, not on uh, birth control pills. Um, okay, great. So... Just on a side note, while we kind of segue into treatment, just want to um, add in everybody that well, that I want to welcome everyone back this week to Maiden Lane Medical's Women's Health Weekly Telecast, um, where expert information about women's health is brought to you by the top doctors in New York City, around the country, and around the world. Um, here today to talk about fibroids and Fibroid Awareness Month is myself, Dr. Levy, and Dr. Shomadada Thomas. Um, and please join us on our podcast if you can. Uh, so. So as a good segue into treatment um, and treatment modalities, um, Sean asks the question, are you performing surgeries now or not? I'm asking because of COVID, good question. We're back, we are performing surgeries insofar as the hospitals in New York City uh, will allow us to. Um, everybody's trying to get uh, elective cases back onto the schedule and somewhere in the back of everyone's head, I think they're trying to beat a, uh, the, beat everyone, beat, a, beat a second wave into the operating room and get their patients taken care of. Um, but uh, yeah, the operating rooms are tight. We just got our block time back at two different hospitals. So we're really excited. And uh, so we're, we're cruising along like we were prior to COVID. 
uh, with regard to surgical procedures. Uh, so let's talk about treatments and uh, what the what, what are the what what how do you decide what treatment to use? We have a lot of different treatments uh, for fibroids. There are a lot of different mo modalities from doing like nothing to doing major surgery. Um, so what makes what are the factors, Dr. Donna Thomas, that go into making a decision about how one would would offer a particular treatment or, to a patient? And remember, when we talk about when we talk about fibroid treatments, it's always, it's a team approach. You're our partner. Uh, this can't be done in a unilateral way. We can't dictate a treatment. We want everyone to have the best education they can have about fibroids. We want all our patients to be informed. We send patients to websites to ask questions. We really want everyone to get it um, because not being informed about your options when it comes to fibroids is, is actually probably worse than getting like no treatment or, you know, it's no, it's no good. It doesn't work out well for anybody. So Dr. Dada, so I, I, that's, that was sort of what I was asking you is what are the factors? What, how do you, how do you approach that conversation with a patient? Well, I like that you mentioned it could range anywhere from observation to major surgery. And I think it's important that every time we're trying to figure out a treatment plan that we really present the range of options and pick out along with our, our patient who is our partner in this, we're really picking out what's the best. I like to work a little bit backwards in that I start with what are our goals for the surgery? Um, and and or not, usually or the, one, not, or the not surgery. Or the not surgery, sorry. Right. What are our goals for treatment? Thank you. What are our goals for treatment? Um, and usually that will lead to a few uh, factors. So one is what are the symptoms that we're dealing with? Is it bleeding? Is it pressure? Is it, uh, you know, uh, concerns for pregnancy planning? So w what are our priorities and what are we really trying to treat at the end of the day? And then the, um, and, and that includes, um, you know, or actually, actually the next thing we think about is what are we looking at in terms of, um, in terms of you as the patient, in terms of your age, your anatomy, most importantly, um, and a big, obviously for this topic, a big consideration has to be what are the reproductive plans we have? Are we planning for pregnancy in the near future, in the far future? Are we done with pregnancy? Are we not planning to have any pregnancies at all? So that's obviously a very critical topic. Um, and then I think it's a discussion of, okay, well, based on those initial factors, these are what's available to us. And, um, how how comfortable are we and how big are we looking to go at this time for me in general um, i usually say if it's something where we have time and there's not an urgency or one particular clear goal needed to be addressed at the time i usually say let's you know consider the smallest and then go to the largest i mean we're surgeons we, we're lucky to have again um we're all surgical specialists in, in fibroid surgery meaning we um, have extensive experience with minimally invasive surgery, but that doesn't mean that's the only option we're going to give. Um, and oftentimes we have a lot of discussion and trial of other medical treatments if, if time allows and if our goals for treatment allow for that. So I think it's important to remember it's not something that we have to jump into surgery and that really we should hear all of our options. So um, goals for treatment, um, our particular anatomy that we're dealing with, age, which ties into reproductive plans, and then how how far do we want to go with treatment? How big do we want to go right now? 
that's kind of how I outline it when I have my discussions. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, those are really important factors. Obviously, other medical issues um, may play into it. Um, how urgent it is, uh, for example, uh, ev- uh, with some level of regularity, um, just because we're uh, a referral uh, office with some level of regularity, I see patients with fibroids that are large enough that they've pressed on uh, the ureters, uh, which are the tubes that carry the urine from the kidneys to the bladder. Um, and uh, if we don't relieve the pressure from one or both ureters, we could, you know, the patient then risks damaging the kidneys and could lose a kidney or, or both if you just do nothing. So in those cases, it's very difficult to recommend anything other than surgery to make sure we relieve that pressure in, a, in the short order. Um, but you're right, any, anything that ranges from, you know, kind of that to, to just observation and doing nothing are really, really sort of outlines um, our treatment, our treatment options. Um, very often we see patients, let's start from the, let's start from the, the kind of, um, most radical treatment for fibroids, which is a hysterectomy. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go there first because uh, good Samaritan asked me, um, asked me about, uh, their, their, they, the, the idea that some, a couple of gynecologists that his wife saw, um, was just get a hysterectomy. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing the conversation was a little broader than just get a hysterectomy, but um, that's often a lot of the times what doctors say. And I, and I think part of that comes from, you know, some lack of experience. If it's not someone that focuses their career solely on managing fibroids, that's a really easy thing to do, um, but it's not nuanced and it's not always respectful towards the patient's wishes. Um, and it's not always um, the least invasive thing to do. Um, so, you know, let's start with that big thing. What's another kind of lesser big thing that we can do, which is a myomectomy? Um, now, a myomectomy is just a fancy word for taking fibroids out. And fibroids can be taken out in many, many different ways. Uh, one of the ways which we've shunned taking fibroids out is making, I'm going to go on my chest here, making a big abdominal incision opening up the belly either vertically or horizontally and removing them, leaving you in the hospital for three days, um, putting you out of work for six weeks as a result of that. That's not what, that's not what we do. That's, that's almost never what's recommended. I can't remember the last time that we did one of those uh, large surgeries. It's been years and years and years. Um, because if we have a difficult time doing it um, through tiny incisions, we can always get together as a team with the doctors at Maiden Lane Medical um, and take care of it together. Um, So yeah, there's laparoscopic myomectomy, which is putting a couple of tiny holes uh, in the abdominal wall and using instruments to remove the fibroids. That can be done with a regular laparoscopy. That can be done with a robotic assistance, which is our favored way of doing it. But fibroids aren't always accessible uh, through those tiny incisions. In fact, sometimes they're just, as Dr. Dada mentioned earlier, just inside the cavity of the uterus. So it doesn't make sense to then cut through the entire uterus just to get to the cavity when we can access that cavity in a much more clean, much nicer, minimally invasive way, which is to do surgery through the vagina, in through the cervix, and then put the camera into the uterus and cut it out from the uterus that way. Um, and that's an incisionless, um, easy, easy in and out surgery that uh, makes a lot of sense for a lot of women. Um, because we get a lot of referrals from infertility doctors, that's often the problem. 
and it's a very simple surgery for us to do. Sometimes in the office we can do that, and sometimes we take patients to the hospital for it, really depending on the size and what type of support we'll need um, for that surgery. Um, so there are other minimally invasive things that certainly can be done. Um, one of the minimally invasive approaches that patients frequently ask me about is uterine fibroid embolization. And I have to tell you that I'm a big fan of uterine fibroid embolization. And the reason I'm a big fan of it is because it's not surgery. Um, and it generally comes with less predictable morbid morbidity than surgery. There's no, there's no big, you know, you get a little sedated, but there's no intubation. There's no big anesthesia task. Um, yeah, you're in the hospital overnight. So what? Um, it's, a, it's a procedure in which an interventional radiologist takes a small tube and puts it in the artery in your leg and moves it all the way up into the artery near your uterus and blocks the blood flow, uses little microbeads to block the blood flow to the fibroids in the uterus. It's a great therapy and I really like it for stopping bleeding um, in women who have completed childbearing in order to avoid surgery so that you can stave off that time between symptoms and getting to menopause, which is most, which for most women, will decrease or stop that bleeding altogether and significantly decrease the amount of symptoms they're having. Why did I emphasize uh, women who have completed childbearing? Because there's a good body of data. Um, that, and so no one wants to experiment on pregnant women and pregnant women don't want to be experimented on, which is well, on both sides is, is exactly how we want it. Um, but so there's no good data on, on pregnancy outcomes with different anatomical variants of blood vessels around the uterus and fibroids. And the issue then becomes, uh, the issue then becomes those microbeads go to two main places depending on the type of anatomy one has. They can go to the ovaries um, and decrease the quality of ovulation. Um, and they can go to the endometrium and decrease the quality of the blood flow to the endometrium, which, by the way, is where the uh, embryo implants at the beginning of a pregnancy. And if your endometrium is bad news, that pregnancy is not going to hold. And if it's bad news because of an embolization, that's big trouble. Um, so we try to avoid uterine fibroid embolizations in, pre, in women who have not completed their um, childbearing. So usually that's uh, generally reserved for older patients. All right. So are those all the are those the main? I know there are other there are other techniques out there which we don't necessarily use here at Maiden Lane Medical. There are two other ones that are popular, and if you read them on the internet, um, they're certainly out there. One of the one of them is called MRGFUS, uh, which is magnetic resonance guided fibroid ultrasound. I'm pretty sure everyone's abandoned that technique um, at this point. Mainly the reason being that it takes like six hours on the MR scanner uh, getting blasted with ultrasound waves in the fibroid to just like melt uh, a like four or five centimeter fibroid and so that doesn't that works for a very small subset of women with that like perfect smaller fibroid but doesn't work for like 95% of women. The other one is um, my is fibroid ablation uh, which is a procedure done with basically an electrical wand um, that's that's placed laparoscopically and can potentially be placed under ultrasound guidance, but most commonly laparoscopically. Um, and it's placed into the fibroid and basically burns the inside of the fibroid, right? And just thus destroying the blood vessels around it. And then it kind of shrinks. Um, so it's very similar to a uterine fibroid embolization minus the microbeads that would go to your... Um, that would go to your ovaries or endometrium. The downside of that is that you still have fibroids. And if bulk symptoms 
um, is a big problem. It certainly won't relieve those bulk symptoms quickly um, and may make um, some pain difficult, pain worse because there's a lot of inflammation associated with having that dead, that dead tissue um, sitting inside of your uh, uterus. All right, so we hear this all the time, right? We hear all the time, Dr. Dada, about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. Should I say it? The L word? I'll say it. Fine. Um, yeah, the, we hear about the L word all the time, Lupron. Um, Lupron is a med... <laughs> you like that, the L word? Is there a show? Hold on, I just realized. She's laughing at me, but I just realized there's a show called the L word. Ah, I wasn't even thinking that. <laughs> and the L word definitely wasn't Levy. That's for sure. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Okay. So, yeah, there's Lupron, which, which isn't a drug we like to use, um, except in incredibly rare circumstances um, in patients who have very, very heavy bleeding and are really anemic prior to surgery. Um, Lupron is a medication that um, basically shuts down the ability of your brain to talk to your ovaries and tell your ovaries to produce estrogen. So it creates a, um, a state in which you're basically in menopause. Um, it's called medical menopause. Uh, for a reason. Uh, your estrogen levels are very low and most fibroids will respond to those low estrogen levels, but you know what else will, will respond to those low estrogen levels? Your bones. Um, so you're going to have bone loss when you're on Lupron um, and that may be okay for some older women on a short term, but if you're like 25 years old and you haven't hit your peak bone mineral density um, or you're 30 years old and you haven't peaked and you're kind of getting to the point where you're hitting your peak bone mineral density, which you hit between like age 30 and 32, um, then Lupron's a very bad idea for you, speaking in, in general terms. Um, a lot of times, uh, gynecologists will put patients on Lupron to shrink the fibroids, which is effective. But you know what happens when you stop the Lupron? Almost 100% of the time, those fibroids come back. So there are two, right, exactly, Dr. Dada. So there are two big indications for Lupron. Either to help as a bridge on the short term to, to maybe get you if you're close to menopause, and the other one is as a pre-surgical treatment um, to use in uh, women um, who, uh, in whom we need to correct the anemia by shutting down the, the menses altogether uh, and then correcting the anemia. Of course, um, iron infusions um, and even blood transfusions work, um, work also. We get worried about bone loss so much. Um, that uh, because you don't really ever make that bone loss up, it never comes back. The rate of the rate of growth comes back, but the bone loss is bone, bone loss is bone loss. Um, okay, so we talked about what else? What else is out there? I know there's other stuff out there. You've got I know you've got a couple of things to talk about. Always, um, I, I think that's a great comprehensive overview, and I think just on top of that, kind of one layer to think about when you're considering or you're you know discussing with your with your physician hysterectomy myomectomy or other procedures when we um i just want to clarify when we say if you're done with re reproductive years you know then hysterectomies can be considered or you know based on your future future plans i think we are seeing a bit of a trend towards double thinking like why are why are we doing going to hysterectomy directly when maybe we can actually resolve this just by removing the fibroid. I think as surgical techniques have evolved and you know um, experts are focusing on this, we're seeing that hysterectomy was once offered as first line uh, treatment for fibroids. And again, with the statistics that I said, about half of hysterectomies 
perform annually are four, are four fibroids. That's almost 200,000. And then there's 30,000 specifically myomectomies. So that's a lot of surgery we're doing um, for fibroids. And I think we're noticing now the trend is, you know what, organ conservation, meaning uterine preservation, may be something that's a very important discussion even beyond childbearing years. And um, sometimes, you know, it's, it, it's worth talking about, even if it's just a comfort level as a patient, well, why do I have to, you know, have the uterus uh, removed? What's the benefit of removing it? And, and what's the con of keeping it? Um, one, one common thing that comes up is, well, you know, if we, if we remove your uterus and we leave the ovaries, then there's really no difference. But what we're seeing is that's not really true. Um, there are, uh, there is earlier menopause seen in women who have um, hysterectomy, even if the ovaries are preserved. When yeah, compared to, right. that's a that's a great po that's a great point. Um, and I was actually gonna I was actually whipping out my calculator um, to uh, calculate that because I, I don't remember it off the top of my head on how many women years of of hormone production are lost due to hysterectomy without oophorectomy. Um, because on average, women who've had a hysterectomy but not had their ovaries out uh, will go into that ovarian menopause like six or seven months earlier. Um, yep. So if you think about it, if, you, if you've done like 200,000 hysterectomies and you multiply that, that's like millions of women years of good hormone production loss. And we want you to have that good hormone production because we want to decrease things like Alzheimer's and heart disease and hypercholesterolemia and, and things that will kill you later in life um, that you may not recognize missing in those uh, where you that may not cause a problem in the six months where you didn't have that um, great hormone production. I just want to I want to walk down the rest of the well, the chain of the of treatments. Uh, we talked yeah. about we talked about uh, the last thing I talked about was Lupron. There are other medical treatments. Um, some of the things out there are this are a class of drugs called the selective progesterone Re selective progesterone receptor modulators. Um, those can and have proven to be somewhat effective, but again, are medical therapies. And if you stop them, the fibroids and bleeding will come right back. Um, there's another class of medication called mifepristone, the RU486. You may have. Um, you may have heard about, we don't really use that often, um, although it can potentially be effective uh, and effective therapy. Um, and they're certainly doing nothing. Um, if you don't need, if you don't have significant symptoms or you can live with your symptoms, then do nothing. That's always the safest, that's always the safest treatment. Patients ask about birth control pills, um, uh, very frequently. And again, we don't really recommend that because there is data that suggests that birth control pills can make fibroids themselves, uh, worse. Big broad picture, if there um, are bleeding problems um, that are the only problem, then um, it's unlikely that surgery is necessary. Often that can be managed with even a hormone-containing IUD. Um, progesterone is a great medication by itself uh, to treat bleeding associated with fibroids. All right, I want to get to some of these awesome uh, YouTube viewer questions um, as we kind of get towards uh, the, end, the end here. Um, Liana asked another great question, are polyps a type of fibroids? Um, and I wanted to actually address that earlier. Um, patients come in asking about um, polyps and thinking they have fibroids. Polyps, Liana, are not fibroids. Polyps are a whole different story. Polyps are an overgrowth of the lining of the uh, uterus, the endometrium. Uh, patients come in also sometimes confused about cysts. They were told they had a cyst. Um, and often cysts are in the ovaries, so cysts aren't fibroids, but certain types of ovarian cysts can have fibrotic type tissue in it, the fibrothecomas, 
Um, and fibroids themselves, even when they're inside the uterus, can have a cystic appearance, meaning it has something inside of it, um, like fluid that's not necessarily solid. So, and sometimes that happens because fibroids do what's called degenerate, um, and they can accumulate fluid and blood inside of them. Um, okay, Rosemary wants to know, because I am okay with not having children, I'm told I should remove everything but my ovaries. And I think that's the conversation that Dr. Donna Thomas and I were just having. If the indication for the hysterectomy is a good, really good indication, you have so much pain, so much bleeding, you can't live with it anymore, you may have tried one or two other things, they don't work, they don't work either, um, then I certainly, if you're definitely going to have a hysterectomy, I certainly recommend, one, of course, have it laparoscopically. Don't have it any other way. Um, there's no reason for that. But I also certainly recommend leaving the ovaries in. But remember, leaving the ovaries in doesn't mean leaving the fallopian tubes in. And make sure your doctor is also taking your fallopian tubes out. Why? Because fallopian tubes are implicated as the site of where early ovarian cancers can start. So even if you're at average risk for ovarian cancer, you should, if you're, if there's a, if you're going to have a hysterectomy, the tubes should come out also. There's absolutely no reason uh, to leave them in, which is something that just started about 10 years ago. Um, so that was a, that was a great question. Uh, let's see. So good. So this is a, this is a question. Good Samaritan asked about a hysterectomy, um, with regard to, um, fibroids and the, um, and the potential, you know, in, implications of having a hysterectomy with regard to uterine prolapse. I'm, I'm sorry, obviously the uterus is out with regard to vaginal prolapse. Good Samaritan, you brought up a great topic. We don't have time for that topic today because um, it's about an hour long conversation, but I would love to have it. And I think we'll do prolapse. Um, it happens, it happens that uh, we have an expert lined up for that very topic, but I think in the fall. Um, so we will, uh, we will, we will definitely um, get to that. It sounds like Rosemary's uh, getting ready to uh, to have surgery, and we wish you the um, best of luck. Um, yeah, I'm uh, just writing a little note to um, fibroids. One of the one of the um, big important topics that we like to try to get to uh, with people is um, the topic of nutrition. And Paula, thank you for re-asking your question. Um, I'd like to kind of end with that. Um, because nutrition means so much, and I try to end all our conversations here with a little bit about um, nutrition because it's such an important educational um, topic. My first, issue, my first conversation on that is there's a lot of stuff out there about nutrition. Um, I, for one, um, am in the camp that there's not a, there isn't one single micronutrient, whether it's vitamin X, Y, or Z, or, or, or whatever, um, that that treats cu or treats or cures any any disease. It's a combination of whole foods, healthy nutrition, um, and a holistic approach to the way your body responds to food. That's important. So when people ask me, oh, can this decrease you know my chances of getting the, that? Uh, then I say, well, maybe that can be a contributing factor, but there are other things you have to pay attention to. Dr. Dada, do you have anything to add um, about anything associated with fibroids that we missed talking about? These were great questions from our YouTube audience. I don't think we've ever had so many awesome questions. 
yeah, this is great. This is great. And I, I think it just goes to show that, you know, people are, are at least talking about it more. We're having Fibroid Awareness Month, um, which is great. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot more information out there. I think techniques have really evolved. And I really always just urge my friends and family to have very open, candid discussions do your research. Information is out there, obviously, from um, good resources. And, and, you know, all of your options, because over time, techniques change. You want to make sure, you know, you may have to meet a few different people that are going to offer you different treatments, right? Three different doctors, four different treatments. Sometimes they joke, but that is that is important because you want to know who has the right approach for you personally. These are very individualized plans that we need. Um, and you need somebody that will really be open. I Again, I feel very um, fortunate that we have a group and we, we are constantly, you know, staying up with changing standard of practice. Um, and that's really important as a patient to make sure that your your beliefs, what you're comfortable with, match your, match your doctor and that they have, again, a, a large offer you for treatment thank you everyone for joining us again on a friday morning afternoon now women's health weekly um, with the experts in women's health from maiden lane medical and today experts in fibroids and everything fibroids um, and happy fibroids month uh, please subscribe to our youtube channel please join us on our podcast which is completely available after this um, broadcast and uh, I wish everyone a warm, healthy, happy, and safe weekend. We look forward to talking to you. Actually, next week we'll be off. Um, I am taking the family on an RV trip, um, our first vacation in a very long time, as one might imagine. So we're going on a four-day RV trip. And then the week after, we'll be back, and we're off for all of August, and then back in September. So one more episode, July 31st. We'll find something cool to talk about. Um, it looks like weight loss. Um, and... Um, then we'll go from there. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.